Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. From a neighbourhood perspective, If I'm going to put a solar battery system in and I do that in a single house, that might look like one thing. If I do it for a terrace of houses, I can create a local area energy system, which is a much more effective utilisation of the assets I put in. There are benefits to retrofitting those homes, not only with regards to going towards zero carbon, but also saving significant amounts of money on energy bills, improving the comfort of the home and also like the just general appearance of the building and lifetime. Hello and welcome to Local Zero with Matt and Becky. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about money, the money we need to invest to make our homes and our buildings fit for the future. So with our energy bills on the rise and the need to shift to heat pumps and other forms of clean heating becoming an ever-increasing priority, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to make our homes both greener and more energy efficient. Later in the show, we'll be talking with our returning guest and fellow energy rever, Dr. Joe Patterson. Jo works at Cardiff University and she's been working with local authorities in Wales to explore just what it means and what it costs to retrofit our homes to the sorts of standards that we now need. We'll also be chatting with Rufus Grantham. Rufus is the Global Head of Urban Transition Finance at Bankers Without Boundaries and he's been leading some very exciting work looking at new financial instruments that might just hold the key to unlocking the money we need to transform our buildings. And we'll be doing our very best to bring the conversation back to a practical focus of what we can all do in our daily lives to influence change. From taking on civic responsibilities like voting or writing letters to our representatives, to things that we can do in our communities and in our homes. And as always, you can reach out to us at our dedicated Twitter handle, if you haven't already, go find and follow us at Local Zero Pod to get involved with discussions over there. We had some really great chat and feedback from our last pod on community energy policy. Also, email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share some longer thoughts. So before we get into our discussion today, Matt, I think we should reflect back on what's been happening over the past couple of weeks with the good, the bad and the plain old weird. So what has been on your radar, Matt? Well, the news comes thick and fast. It doesn't stop at Local Zero HQ. Let's begin with the good news. Everybody likes the good yep. news. So let's let's start with that. I thought with all the bad press that some of the policies had, particularly decentralized renewables, particularly solar, and we talked a little bit about this at the last episode around community energy, that the reduction in certain policies like the feed-in tariffs or solar Uh, the implementation of solar fall off a cliff, basically, during the uh, mid to late 2010s. But the good news is it's making a comeback, and it's a pretty big one. So looking over the last six years of solar rooftop, so that's solar putting on our roofs, uh, not only homes, but also buildings, we've seen the strongest growth since 2015 in the last year. And last year, we saw 730 megawatts installed. Wow. And that's just solar going onto our roofs. So... We're, we're really starting to make a comeback. And there are kind of three things that could keep this going over the next few years. Uh, well, 
particularly over the next few years, but also the next few months. And I should say what I'm going to talk about is in addition to gas prices going crazy, people are throwing stuff on their roofs to insulate themselves from that. But the three things that are driving this future home standard, this is about making sure the new homes we build are as low carbon as possible. Two, we've seen an exemption on business rates, often very boring, but basically people were getting hammered for putting renewables on their roofs because it was classed as business income. And the third is that government are going to be running their contracts for difference, which is essentially a strike price, a bottom price that will be provided for solar power. Solar's back in the game on that one. It was frozen out for many years. Yeah, really great news for solar. Back in the game, we expect this to go from strength to strength. And this is very, very interesting stuff because if we're building new homes and we're putting solar onto our existing buildings, of course, that can help with managing some of the load as long as we can balance it up. I can see that this could be a real positive thing, you know, extra renewable generation. I guess the big challenge is going to be, can we make sure that that generation is used locally rather than some of the challenges that we saw perhaps kind of five or six years ago that started to emerge, which was with the increasing amounts of solar and people trying to, instead of using it locally or within their own homes, trying to be pushing it into the grid and and, and getting money or getting paid for doing that, yeah. you know, some, some real challenges then on the constraints of the grid and problems being introduced in local areas. So we've got to think about how that goes hand in hand with how we're then using that that energy and whether it is getting used in homes or not. And, and also who can afford to do this. So yeah. solar panels still ain't cheap. You've got to also be able to make the decision to put it on your own roof. That means ordinarily that you own the property. So all the discussion we had in our community energy policy pod, which I strongly recommend listeners have a listen if they haven't already, talks to this. It's about enabling everybody to access this, uh, whether you know rich, poor, uh, rent or owner occupier. It's all fair game for everyone. So that's the good news. Yeah. <laughs> Always nice to start on the good news. What follows the good news is invariably bad news though, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I guess this is like the opposite end of the spectrum of what you've just been talking about for a number of reasons, but not only from, you know, moving from the kind of individual household level energy to let's talk about some of the energy giants, yeah. namely BP, Chevron, ExxonMobil and Shell. And there has been a new article published by academics in Japan, and they've been looking at the records of these large companies. Because what we've seen in recent years is these companies, particularly Shell and BP, talking a lot more about climate and low carbon and transition. And that's been there, you know, on their websites, in the media, but also in their annual reports. And alongside that's been increasing pledges of action, you know, climate friendly action in their strategies. So, you know, being led by the media, we might be thinking, okay, we're starting to see a transition in some of these big companies. This is exciting. But actually what this news article and what the underlying kind of peer review academic paper has found is that despite these claims, looking at the past 12 years of their data, they see that these claims don't actually align with actions. Mm. And the actions show that there is an increasing amount rather than decreasing amount of exploration for fossil fuels. And so they are, despite these claims, seemingly continuing their business model dependence on fossil fuels whilst making it more in, uh, like more opaque. <laughs> so really challenging. So are you talking about the gap between ambition and action? Who's to say whether it's ambition or simply spin? Okay. And I guess depending on... Who is to say, (laughs) Becky? (laughs) Who is to say? Certainly not me. The authors of this paper, maybe. So, um, I mean, if you're looking at it from the kind of purely academic perspective, they're not talking about it from a spin. They're talking about how there is a mismatch between what is coming across in the strategies and in the media versus what's actually happening in the financial records from these companies. And I think important to note that these companies since 1965 have been responsible for more than 10% of carbon emissions around the world. So so this is not small. This is massive. And I guess the big challenge is that, you know, whether it's ambition, whether it's spin, if their actions aren't aligned with a clean future, yeah. we are going to have significant challenges in, in meeting global carbon emission reductions. So the extent to which they follow up on their, their ambitions or their claims really does matter. I mean, of course it might, you know, these are the oil giants, but actually when you put it down to 10% of global emissions since 1965, this matters. Every little bit matters. Every little bit. 
Absolutely. That's one hell of a study. So I think we've got a couple of weird ones as well. So the the weird, I say weird, I, I quite like this story and it was quite a cool story, but it, it made me think about the actions that we can take in different places. So this is all about the skiing industry, which has notoriously been quite a dirty one, right? In terms of emissions, biodiversity, you name it. It's very sort of disposable lifestyle. Uh, Becky, you and I have been fortunate enough to spend time at these ski resorts, right? Yeah, and I have to say, when you're at these ski resorts, like you don't feel that way, right? You feel like I'm in the fresh mountain air and it's all in nature and it's brilliant. But actually you're uncovering something that is perhaps it's kind of dirty little secret. Or an increasingly big one. So there's been a push from some resorts to try and clean up their act, basically. And one of the resorts in France, uh, which is a collection of four smaller resorts, is Sir Chevalier. And they are attempting to produce 30% of all of their electricity themselves by 2023. Now, the bulk of this they're wanting to harness from a combination of solar, wind, and hydro. So it's a resource-rich area here. You're in the mountains. They have 300 days of sunshine a year. Plenty of wind, as you and I know, Becky, when the lifts get shut. Mm -hmm. And also many, many streams, which they utilize for snowmaking and lots of power that the network is there to supply the lifts, to supply the snowmaking machines. So the the network infrastructure is there. So it's a bit of a no-brainer. The the resource is there, the demand is there, and the network is there to to utilize. Now, a question, and I may have already told you the answer. (laughs) (laughs) How much energy consumption of these ski resorts is given over to grooming the piece, the ski piece, snow piece? I know. Well, so I I do know the answer because you foolishly put it in the show notes, which I've got right in front of me. Um, Okay, that's not not good quiz mastery there. Okay. (laughs) But I will say that before I had seen this, I was thinking that, you know, that there's a huge amount of, of other activity in the resorts, right? You've got all of the hotels, yeah. you've got a huge industry in there. So before I saw the answer, I probably would have been thinking maybe 30 or 40%. Yeah. But it's not, is it, Matt? 90. 90% are all the big snow machines that you see crawling up and down at night with their lights on, bashing the piece. Now, how they've calculated this in this, this piece from The Guardian uh, titled Future Proofed Piste Sustainable Skiing, I'm not quite sure because it's all about direct or indirect emissions. And you're quite right. Much of the embodied energy relating to your average week skiing in the French Alps or wherever it may be is much bigger than that, right? So, I mean, if you were going to name the top three kind of energy-rich activities, what would you say they are in terms of your My your, flight your ski, to get me there? <laughs> That's exactly. not insignificant. I mean, you know, the, the heating of all of the buildings in the resorts because yep. it gets pretty cold. Um, yeah. And I'm sure there's got to be something in there to do with the sheer quantities of alcohol that I know are consumed in ski resorts. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, and also the cheese, it's the sheer mountains yes. of melted Jeez. cheese that you tend to eat at these things. But um, anyway, you're actually making me want to go skiing now. Um, but the, <laughs> but uh, also the lift infrastructure. So the, the, the running of that. And so there's lots of little things they're trying to say, little things, important things, emphasis on eating and drinking locally in, in Sir Chevalier, running ski lifts more slowly, apparently. And then we'd have to fact check this. I'm, I'm glad you still got the ski lifts i was worried you were going to say make everyone climb up the mountain no yes yeah you've got a snowshoe up but it apparently a minute longer on the lift if you if your lift normally takes you three minutes if you were to increase that by a minute means 20 percent less energy consumed but um other things bash the piece less use less artificial snow but the big one that you said is about transport so how you get there and actually in this case you can get the train all the way to this resort. And Eurostar claims that if you get the train from London to Paris and then Paris to Briançon, Eurostar says you can take 13 journeys on this, one, three, 13 journeys on it before you produce the same carbon emitted in just one flight. Wow. So anyway, a, a good news story, but, but weird in the sense that it's quite niche. Yeah. And especially niche if you, you like skiing, like which we do. Yeah. I haven't been for many years. Anyway, Becky. <laughs> On to you. You've got one final one to wrap up with, I think. I do, I do. And this builds on on something that I talked about in our last episode, which was the octopus energy demand response trial. So, so Octopus Energy running a trial whereby they are inviting their customers to try and reduce their energy consumption at the times when the grid is the dirtiest and when we've got the most amount of coal generation. Mm. And I am an Octopus Energy customer and I actually signed into this trial. Great. And now I can report back on some real experience because 
two days ago, I got an email into my inbox that said, we're going to be having a window. If you can reduce your energy consumption by 40% between 4.30 and 6.30 tomorrow, click to sign in. If you can reduce it by this amount, and it, it told me by 40%, and it gave me the corresponding amount in kilowatt hours, that they would give me that energy during that period for free. Wow. So I thought, let's let's do it. I phoned, I phoned the husband. We had a chat and we agreed to participate. You shut everything down. You, you went <laughs> complete <laughs> well, complete lockdowns and blackout. Well, so, yeah. <laughs> well, so this was it. So the first thing he said to me is, well, what do we have to do differently? And I sort of said, well, actually, I don't know. No TV, no food, no... <laughs> The lights are off. Well, this is the challenge. So we decided not to run the washing machine or dryer during that time. Uh, okay. Um, and he we, he did actually have a load that was about to go in. So he said, okay, we'll pause that. Try not to use the oven for cooking. What that actually did was turn us onto gas instead of oven. So perhaps kind of an unintended consequence. Yes, we won't use our electricity. We'll use the dirtier fuel instead. So not quite sure how that one panned out. But actually, it was really, really hard to engage in this because, first of all, I just wanted to know actually what I could do. So there was a bit of an information deficit there for me. And then the reality was, was that it was really, really hard because a lot of the things that we do do at that time is preparing food. And my kids need to eat at that time because then they go to bed at seven. So I can't not feed them. Actually, under a microscope, it points to aspects of our energy consumption, which are flexible and those that are inflexible. And this is where social science matters because it's about the lifestyles and routines of each of our families or Mm -hmm. occupants of these buildings. And that's not standard, right? Your, Your neighbors and my neighbors will have quite different demands at different times potentially. And maybe, maybe just more flexible or, or, or less flexible. Yeah. And I, well, I think this is also showing another big difference. And that's that, you know, right now in my home, my heating is is gas powered. My water heating is gas powered. And these are the big things, right? So when you're trying to shift your demand, there's certain things that that require you to change your behavior, like my laundry, like my cooking. You know, if I, I have to actually change my behavior and change my eating patterns or washing patterns. But there are a lot of things where you could be more flexible and not even know it. So here's the, you know, the harsh reality is like, if I had electric heating, my water heater could be switched off that whole time and I probably wouldn't even know it. Yeah. If I had electric heating, like a heat pump, it could probably be switched off during that time. And as long as my home was insulated, I probably could have pre-warmed my home and I wouldn't have even known it. Well, I was going to say there's also a wider debate here. We've got our guests coming shortly, but a a wider debate about whether this is an active or a passive decision. So your point about your kind of heat pump, this is where the internet of things and smart homes comes in because your your home can intelligently be communicating with those market signals and turning things on and off. So maybe putting on your dishwasher when you're asleep at the cheapest time, okay? And you're not having to sweat it. You're not having to read your emails and then change, coordinate your life because your house will do it for you. Yeah, exactly. But I think for me, like what fundamentally underpins a lot of this is that we can only take advantage of this sort of demand response and and shifting when we're using things if we have homes that are capable of this, if our homes are insulated, if we have the right sorts of technologies in them. So if we have homes that are fit for the future, that is something that, you know, is a huge challenge because in my home, I just haven't got that right now. And that is what we're talking about today, right? You know, we're talking about how we get these homes fit for the future and who who pays and how we can pay. Exactly, exactly. And it is not simple. It isn't cheap. And it's a massive challenge. And in fact, I think this is the perfect time to start to bring in our guests. I'm Dr. Joe Patterson. I'm a senior research fellow at the Welsh School of Architecture in Cardiff University. Well, Joe, it's, it's so nice to have you back on the pod. I think this might be your third appearance on Local Zero. I know when you've come on before, we've been talking quite specifically about skills and buildings and really kind of focusing in on specific topics. But one thing that's been on a lot of people's minds, I mean, mine right now, as I sat here, I'm sat here in my home in Glasgow. I'm quite lucky. I'm in a fairly well insulated home. I've got double glazed windows, but I'm still sat here with a heated blanket around me, absolutely shivering. And so I think what's clear for a lot of people is that if we're going to reach net zero and we're going to do it in a way that lets people live in homes that are warm and comfortable where they're not paying, you know, thousands upon thousands upon thousands for their for their energy bills in the future, 
that something needs to be done to transition our built environment, our homes, our buildings, our offices, our workplace. I know that this challenge of trying to make our buildings fit for the future is something that you are quite passionate about and something that you've been working on for a while now. That's right. So um, the low carbon built environment team that the Welsh School of Architecture have spent quite a lot of time over the last 10 years um, retrofitting existing housing, particularly focusing on you know, houses that, that are most in need, that are occupied by people most in need. So those um, living in social housing. Our research has included combining demand reduction solutions, which include energy efficiency measures, external wall insulation, loft insulation, replacing boilers for heat pumps where necessary, but also combining that with renewable energy supply and energy storage to try and optimise a whole house energy system. Through our research, we've retrofitted more than 30 homes. That research has shown us that there are benefits to retrofitting those homes, not only with regards to going towards zero carbon, but also saving significant amounts of money on energy bills, improving the comfort of the home and also like the just general appearance of the building and lifetime. I think I'd love to live in one of those homes actually. <laughs> uh, but but I mean, so we talk about um, the, the benefits and you mentioned significant savings on the bill. I mean, let's actually start to think about what this really means in terms of numbers, because what you outlined there in terms of insulation, and I know it's not just loft insulation, it's all sorts of insulation and getting your windows double glazed. I mean, anybody that's looked at that will see the the hefty price tag that it comes along with. And even um, starting to shift out your boiler, despite the fact that there are some incentive schemes, again, it's not something that most people can afford. So are we looking at savings off the bill that can come anywhere near compensating for the for the outlay? Give us an indication of, of what somebody might need to shell out to transform their maybe quite traditional end of terrace house like I live in, 1900s end of terrace house, into something that actually could be much nicer and warmer and cosier to live in. It is still expensive. And as much as we'd like to think that it isn't, I think going towards net zero is it costs a lot. You are looking at around 40 to 50,000 pounds, just a heat pump on its own, just an, an air source heat pump, which obviously the government are promoting now. It costs about £15,000 to buy and install. And even with the £5,000 grant that's available, that's still three times more expensive than a traditional boiler, which when you're making that choice, it is very difficult to justify spending three times more than what you would normally spend on a gas boiler. So it's very expensive. And we shouldn't kid ourselves. I mean, 50 grand for some homes in some parts of the country, that's like a third of the cost of the home, a quarter of the cost of a home. It's Mm -hmm. not insignificant. How are you dealing with that challenge in the work that you're doing? I'm particularly interested because I know your focus has been on, you know, social housing or working with social landlords as well. Yeah. So I think one of the things that we've always tried to encourage social landlords to do is to look at their program of maintenance So if they're due to re-roof a house or they are about to sort of carry out a programme of external wall insulation, it's combining other measures with those maintenance programmes so that the cost for them isn't seen to be so large. So, for example, if you were about to re-roof a house, you put a PV panel on at the same time, you don't have scaffolding costs. If the PV panel is the actual roof and the, the price of the panel and the roof is that they see the the overall cost as as less of an addition to what they would normally be spending so it is slightly easier to justify that extra money to being smart about when we're implementing it it is a lot it is a lot Mm. and I guess uh, what you're saying is you don't need to be sort of necessarily shelling it out in one go but perhaps the order in which you're doing things is, is important and there will come a time at which you need to have an outlay in your house. And so it's about being smart around, around doing that. We would expect, and we certainly have seen this with, with some of the other, I guess, clean technologies that we've adopted in our homes, whether it's like the PV or storage systems or even the electric vehicles that might be on our driveway. We're seeing the costs of buying one of those decreasing over time we're seeing new different sorts of business models are you seeing the same sort of thing when it comes to talking about energy efficiency and and what we're actually needing to be changing in the home here or are you seeing some challenges around around how these costs are stagnating there are still huge challenges from what we've experienced i mean we have been going out to tender to to procure the technologies that we've been installing and what we found is that things like batteries Things like PV panels, their efficiency or the performance of the products has improved. 
but the actual price hasn't it come down very much at all over the last five to six years. So in many ways, that's a good thing because obviously the reliability, the warranties and everything like that are more trustworthy so that so the people buying those products can rely on them more to be more reliable over a longer period of time. But they still have to pay a similar amount out for the products. And maybe the next step is for the prices to come down. But we're finding where we've actually gone out to tender yesterday um, and we've we've had a few refusals where people have had large requests for PV panels and batteries to be installed and therefore they're reducing the geographical area that they want to cover because they've got enough demand in that geographical area. And the other thing is that the supply chains are really limited as well. So, for example, there are limited amounts of batteries in the country. So that is going to be another limitation until supply chains widen again. Yeah, absolutely. And and in our last episode, we were also hearing just about the sheer lack of people able to deliver some of these jobs and, and right. perform the sort of services that you need to transform the buildings into these you know, real kind of fit for the future homes. I mean, looking at the scale of the problem, and it's brilliant that, that you've been doing this. And did you say you've been doing it for about 30 homes? We've done about, we've retrofitted about 30 homes over the last sort of 10 years, 10 or, yeah, just less than 10 years. Yeah. I mean, looking forward, obviously, that number has got to be <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's a kind of tiny drop in the ocean as to what we really, you know, what we need to be doing. And But from our experiences, there are a lot of challenges that we really have to face full on. And one of those is the skills and who is going to do all of this work and the supply chain for that is is not ready at all and presumably another major challenge is just finding the money like where is the money uh, going well, to come yes, from yes exactly yeah who's going to pay for it and how can they justify it and i th- i think when there's evidence to demonstrate how they can justify it and it, again like i said it's not only about zero carbon it's about an improved built environment more generally so improved internal conditions improved temperatures more consistent temperatures just the better nicer looking house from the outside or from the inside you know that makes a big difference to people's well-being and quality of life so I think factoring in those co-benefits is incredibly important into that decision making process and ultimately I guess what we need is some really innovative new models to to make that happen new forms of data that underpin it and new forms of models that unlock that finance absolutely brilliant thanks joe fascinating chat there with joe patterson about what's required to retrofit our homes for net zero and the costs associated with that now because not all of us have the money to do this ourselves we're gonna have to look at other ways to bring the money forward and to raise the finance to fund these retrofits so now we bring in our next guest who's a finance expert who's going to tell us a little bit about how we can cover the cost of this retrofit Okay, hi, I'm Rufus Grantham. I uh, work at Bankers Without Boundaries. We're a not-for-profit sustainable finance advisory firm, and I head up our urban transition finance and co-head our UK business. Welcome to the show, Rufus. It's great to have you here today. I mean, maybe you could just start by telling us a little bit more about Bankers Without Boundaries. I mean, I've heard of um, Engineers Without Borders and Doctors Without Borders. So Bankers Without Boundaries is definitely a new one to me. So tell me a little bit more about what the organization does and sort of how you got involved with it and with looking at this kind of finance in the context of urban and energy transitions. Uh, So BWB was set up about eight or nine years ago. It was set up by an ex-hedge fund manager who had gone to work for the Prince of Wales um, to set up the Rainforest Project. And the basic concept was that you have some big problems facing society that often sit somewhere with the public sector that could do with some finance advice. And you have a whole bunch of people in the financial service industry who've got finance knowledge. And can you bring those two together? Uh, We're a not-for-profit. We effectively operate a consulting model. We're also FCA regulated, so we can raise finance. And really, we sit in that gap between sources of capital and funding and projects, and often these are projects that historically under public sector have been grant financed because they're small enough to do that. And the problems are now of a scale where that doesn't work. And so how can you start to employ some of the bits of private sector finance into those into those issues? And a lot of that is about switching project design away from a 
grant funded model to an investment model if it's an investment model you need returns and how do you how do you make that work what you're talking about is great for us to be exploring today. So we've just been chatting with uh, Dr. Joe Patterson and she was telling us all about some of the challenges involved in retrofitting homes. So this kind of urban transition that, that's a big, a big part of our getting to net zero and um, reflecting on some of the work she does, which is no doubt funded by grant finance and very small number of homes is sort of, it's unbelievable how expensive that is. And so you can see the real limitations in grant finance. And she was talking about, you know, a home at a time. I mean, clearly this is a huge scale problem because we've got this across all of our cities and all of our towns. It's not like it's just constrained to Glasgow or Wales, where she was talking about. So, I mean, can you perhaps give us an indication around some of the the size and the scale of the challenge that we're really talking about here? Yeah, absolutely. So there are 29 million homes in the UK. Obviously the typology and quality of those buildings varies hugely. And so the amount of money that you would spend to get it to net zero varies hugely. There's a there's effectively a population curve of spend. The Climate Change Committee in the Sixth Carbon Budget talks about an average spend of £9,000 per property. That, to be fair, doesn't include any energy generation and is based on a deployment out to 2050. So they're assuming reductions in costs over that time period and a little bit of sort of time value of money. I think the Scottish Government talks about £12,000 per property. I put out a, a LinkedIn sort of hive mind post just, just before Christmas, suggesting I'm not a technical expert, I'm not a built environment person, I'm a banker, uh, that maybe £25,000 was the was the right price and, and got roundly shouted down that that was way too too low. Talking to the London Borough of Camden, they talk about an average potential cost of, of fifty to £60,000. Um, so that there are lots of numbers out there. I think there may be in some cases some political pressure not to make the problem look too big. Um, possibly. <laughs> but the reality is numbers are big. I think when you start to talk to practitioners of deep retrofit, and we, we do that as well, and you do hear these sort of 30, 40, 50, 60,000 pound numbers, there is a possibility that they're not looking at the average point of the population curve, but they're looking at the harder to abate bit. Yeah. So that's one possibility. The other point that feeds into that is what what's your target? So the Climate Change Committee, actually the target is EPCC across the UK. Now that's not net zero. So if you want to go to net zero, there's there's more to do um, than that. And there is a debate about whether you include capital costs of generation, so solar battery typically. That makes the bill bigger, but it changes the economic profile quite dramatically. So it's not just about how much money do you spend, but also what energy savings you deliver from that. Some of the numbers you've you've thrown out there, I recognise in terms of what I'm trying to do, what I've already spent and what I ultimately will spend, um, certainly at the, the higher end of that, what I wanted to ask is the extent to which we need finance instrument solutions here, because we're in this position where energy prices are, are escalating. There's a growing incentive for people to do something to reduce their energy bills, whether that's through microgeneration and displacing what they bring into their homes from the grid, or to reduce uh, their overall energy consumption by improving levels of energy efficiency, do more with less. But obviously, you need the money to capitalize on, on that opportunity, i.e. to retrofit and pay it yourself. So, so where are we in that? The state of the UK sort of household finances has changed a lot. We've got a cost of living crisis. We're on the back of COVID. Furlough employment is you know, fluctuating. What's your take on where we're at and the ability to pay for ourselves? I don't think we should be doing this at the individual household level. We're talking about neighborhood scale um, coordinated action is, is the model that we're we're currently working on, and we've got base funding to try and build out a demonstrator of that, and kind of come back to that model later. But if you think about it from the individual householder perspective, is there an economic incentive? So will I get my money back? If that is in place, can I actually get access to the capital? Do I have the credit capability to borrow the money? Do I want to do it because it's a pain in the neck? It's managing a building project in your own home. It's dusty. It's it's disruptive. And all of those things are challenged. Now, you're absolutely right. And average energy bills in the UK were about £1,200, £1,300 combined energy bill. Historically, they're going, depending who you listen to, to about £2,000. So 29 million households, we were collectively spending £35 billion a year on gas and electricity to heat and power our homes. Yeah, And, and suggestions, Rufus, that, that may go higher still again with the, the October price cap. But suggestions this week around up to 3,000 
potentially. Okay, well, if it's 2,000, it's about 60 billion. If it's 3,000, it's about 90 billion, 85, 90 billion. So there's, there's a big chunk of spend that we can redeploy to help fund this. Now, I think there are some problems with doing that, though. One, if you don't include generation, if you think about a fabric first and heat source, you know, heat pump type heat source replacement model, you dramatically reduce the carbon emissions of a property. You do not dramatically reduce the cost because the unit cost of power for electricity is about four or five X the unit cost of gas. So your input energy requirement drops significantly, but your cost goes to the CCC talk about a 16% average reduction of energy bill. So on old energy bills, that would be about 200 pounds. If you believe the 9,000 pound capital number, which I think most people struggle with, that's 45 years to get your money back with no return. Wow. So that brings us to another problem, which is if we imagine all home owners are rational economic animals. Yep. So just like Becky and I. <laughs> a 45 year return with no, with no return. So you'll probably I, I do the math. It's going to be 60, 70 years if you want a, a low level return will be dead, right? Our investment horizon as individuals isn't long enough. So there's a real mismatch between the investment time horizon of decarbonizing your property. Now I'm ignoring the other benefits that flow in terms of a more comfortable home and getting rid of damp and all, maybe causing damp. But you're also talking about the 9,000 estimate. And, you know, Matt was saying earlier uh, to me that he's just to do his windows could cost 35 grand. So the reality is if, if we're at a higher limit, I mean, what are we talking about then? Like sort of 200 years? Yeah. Now, it's, now it's nuts, if, you right? put a, if you put a solar battery install in, which is going to add on the average home, maybe add six, 7,000 pounds of capital cost, you're then talking about a much more significant cost reduction obviously hugely depends on the typology and, and everything else, but you know, potentially of the order of magnitude of 60, 70, 80% reduction in bill, that's much more significant. And so although you're spending more money up front, the return characteristics still change, but you're still talking multiple decades. And for most people, that's not the way people think about investing their money. And there's, a, there's another problem here, which often I think gets overlooked, which is this debate is often anchored in a conversation about wealthy middle-class people who own their own house, have 30, 40, 50% equity in that property, can call up Lloyd's or Santander and say, I'd like to borrow 30, 40 grand to do my windows, please, and borrow the money. If you look at the UK as a whole, a third of residents are either in social housing or private rental. Of the two thirds who are own occupiers, a third of those are over the age of 65 can't access mortgage finance. So you've now got two thirds of two thirds who are own occupiers under the age of 65. So that's just under a half. In that group, you have people who bought on the right to buy scheme, have no credit, can't borrow money. You have people who've just recently bought their first property or at 95% loan to value and are up to the eyeballs in debt anyway. They can't borrow more money. I have a, a house with lots of equity in and a mortgage, but I can't increase that mortgage because I no longer work in, a, in, in finance and earn enough money to do that. So that kind of group of able to pay owner occupiers who could do this if they wanted to, it's not nothing, but it's not the majority by a long shot. Okay. So Rufus, there's an unspoken crisis here with regards to net zero. I mean, often access to finance is the point here, but this is around kind of credit ratings, capacity to, to take on board additional credit. And if we're already maxed out as a nation, or as you say, those lenders don't see us as, as fit lendees, then we've got a real problem because we can't access the funds to take those actions that we need for net zero. Yes, exactly. And, 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 and you then layer onto the fact that I'm sure as you're, as you're discovering that, it's quite complicated, right? What do I actually do? There aren't very many yet net zero retrofit companies you can go who will do all of this. You've got to talk to a windows company. You've got to go and talk to someone to do your insulation, talk to a heat pump provider. Well, should you get ground source? It's complicated, right? And, and or is it the most effective way to get 29 million householders to become retrofit experts in their own property? That doesn't strike me as a particularly efficient way of, of doing this. Just to put some, you asked about numbers and I didn't give you, hard numbers. If you just do the math, so on the CCC numbers, that's a £261 billion bill to retrofit the UK, 9,000 times 29 million. If you look at the Scottish government numbers, it's uh, about 350 billion. If you look at the 25,000 number that I use, which lots of people think is too low, it's three quarters of a trillion. If you look at the 50,000 number that you referenced, that's one and a half trillion pounds. Like, these are big, big, big numbers. Now, in the context of that, we've got a 
60 to 90 billion energy bill that we're all collectively paying, which we can potentially harness. I think one of the one of the real issues, and, and you, know, you, you touched on the, the fact that there's, there's, a, there's a housing affordability crisis, we've got a cost of living crisis. The approach in the UK, and to be fair, in every other country that we have looked at, and we, we work globally and particularly across Europe, is a combination of policy and subsidy. So ultimately, it's the individual asset owner's responsibility, and we're going to use policy to force you, and we're going to use subsidy to encourage you. Caxot, carrot and stick approach. So we've, we've done it with cars, okay? We're going to phase out diesel cars. We'll do it with gas boilers at some point. We will stop you being able to raise mortgage finance on an EPCD or below property. We'll stop you selling, renting an EPC deal. We'll create reasons to force people to indebt themselves. And again, if that's viewed through a lens of the middle-class suburbs, maybe that's fine. But you're effectively attaching the cost of retrofit to asset value. And when the average um, house price in London is 600,000, the impact of that is very different from the northeast of England, where the average house price is 160,000. So we did, we did a bit very back of the envelope, slightly Mickey Mouse maths, that suggested that the average London homeowner would need to spend about a third of their equity, 30% of their equity, to retrofit their home. In the northeast of England, it's just over 100%. So let's take an entire region where we know we have levelling up issues and push them into negative equity. So there's a hugely regressive potential of that approach. And so we have to be looking at a way of doing this that recognises we can't just force it onto individual borrowing. Even if we all could borrow the money, it's an incredibly regressive approach. I'm really interested to to hear a little bit more about this shift from individual to neighbourhood. And I just want to sort of summarise where, where I'm hearing a lot of the key challenges. And it seems that the financial instruments that we have right now, which are targeted at the individual level, are clearly problematic. In my home, we're talking about improvements that we want to make. And right now, I'd, I'd love to think about insulation. I'm struggling with what I can borrow. You probably would class me as in the middle classes. I own my own home. I have a decent income. But I, I, I'm in a similar situation to you. I have no money that I can borrow. And anything that I want to do, you know, I have a bathroom that's falling to pieces. I have wood that's coming off and leaks that have been going on. And so much of the time, it's I'm in firefighting mode, right, in terms of what needs maintenance. And the opportunity to invest, it's, it's like it's something that doesn't even come up on those cards. Maybe you can share a little bit about what a different approach could look like, because evidently this individual making everybody an expert making everybody want to do this and then finding a way that gives everybody the potential to do this which clearly can't happen in a lot of regions is problematic so so what does better look like better looks complicated and needs testing i wouldn't in any way say we have the solution but we have the outlines of what could be a solution is is how i put it And, and there is a there's a real positive here as well which is when we're talking about returns just now, we're talking about economic returns, right? We're talking about what does my energy bill go down? And it's not just energy bill. You know, if you put external wall insulation on a building, your maintenance costs, you don't have to point the brickwork anymore. You know, there are maintenance cost savings as well. But we're talking about cash-based monetizable savings. That isn't the entire impact of doing this work. If you do this work, particularly if you do it collectively, street by street, neighborhood by neighborhood, city by city, you generate a whole bunch of other impacts as well. Huge job creation. You also, actually, we, we reckon you, you probably 25 to 30% of the spend on a, on a broad retrofit program goes straight back to treasury through VAT, corporation tax through the supply chain, income tax and national insurance for people employed in the supply chain, um, avoided benefits from taking people out of unemployment. So there's, there's an immediate payback to treasury from doing this work as well. But it's not just that. There is very, very clear evidence of the linkage between poor quality housing and healthcare outcomes. There's very clear linkage with educational attainment. If you took the economic value created by renovating and improving and reducing the energy footprint of our built environment, I think you can make an argument you do this from an economic standpoint nationally, not from a green carbon perspective, but because you will create value for the country by doing this work. The problem with the individual approach is that If me doing my bit of insulation in my property collectively with lots and lots of other people in the area reduces the long-term healthcare provision costs for my community, that doesn't help me in my mortgage funding. So we're not harnessing those co-benefits, collectively call them, to drive this work. So that's that's one piece. The other piece is this is complicated stuff, uh, much better to collectivize the 
expertise required to do it. It's also the economics are poor. How can you improve the economics? Mass procurement, do it at scale. So if you do five streets in one go, you're buying heat pumps at a scale that gets you a much better price than buying them individually. The other advantage of thinking about from a neighborhood perspective is you can be much more systemic. So if I'm going to put a solar battery system in and I do that in a single house, that might look like one thing. If I do it for a terrace of houses, I can create a local area energy system, which is a much more effective utilization of the assets I put in. You get a better energy saving per pound of capex effectively. I might not put individual heat pumps in per property. I might create a ground source heat pump network to provide heat to a group of a group of houses. So your, your capital efficiency improves if you start thinking more systemically. And then there's one final piece that comes out of this idea of doing things at a neighborhood scale and orchestrating at a neighborhood scale, which is while you're there, the marginal cost of doing other things that that community wants and needs goes down. And this is the sort of don't dig the road up three times to do gas, water and broadband, dig it up once to do everything. And so, okay, we're going to we're going to do all of the buildings. Well, what could we do between the buildings at the same time? We could plant green infrastructure. We could put in EV charging infrastructure. And so you start to change this. All of these things are moving the bill up, right? They're all adding more cost. But you start to move this away from a you know, technocratically defined uh, energy system approach to effectively what becomes regeneration and reinvestment. And you can sell that to communities in a very different way than windows, heat pumps, insulation. So Rufus, if I can follow up on that, trying to reduce the costs through things like, you know, dig once, economies of scale, that makes sense. I also completely take your point. We need to be framing retrofit in a way that we encapsulate all of the benefits that are saved, whether it's healthcare or as you say, educational attainment, jobs. These need to be factored in to the cost and benefit of these things. But if we go back to the beginning discussion, which is about access to finance. So if I can kind of crudely divide the nation into able to pay and unable to pay for retrofit. That's problematic, but if we could just run with that for the moment. I think the unable to pay are probably almost a, a simpler approach in the sense that we can see that as something that needs to be dealt with by state intervention and subsidy. It's the able to pay, some of which are sitting on a raft of savings. There was some crazy numbers that came out during uh, the first lockdown, the amount of debt that people cleared, credit cards they weren't spending because they weren't going out on lockdown, the amount of money that they invested into upgrading their homes, not energy, I might add mostly. But how do we unlock that money? Middle class, suburban, semi with 2.4 kids and two cars on the drive. How do we get them? What financial offerings are going to nudge them in the right direction? One, if you take the unable to pay sector, and you say, well, we're clearly just going to have to fund that through state funding. We'll bankrupt the country. The number's too big. So it, it, you, you, can, you can think of that from an individual building perspective, but when you multiply it up, the numbers just get out of control in, in terms of scale. The only way social housing companies can take on more debt is moving their rent up, which goes entirely against their whole reason for being. That doesn't really work either. So A, a there's a challenge that the numbers are too big. If we are going to pay for this entire problem ourselves, either through tax or through individual savings, the numbers are too big. What we are proposing is actually you can have the same model for both able to pay and un unable to pay. And so if national government finance and individual payment are the two current pots of money that we're thinking about balancing between, can we unlock a third pot of money? So the UK pension fund industry manages 2.4 trillion pounds. You've then got the insurance companies that run their own assets. That pool of capital is looking for super long-term returns because their liabilities are long-term. They pay pensions out over decades. They want to invest their assets to create an income over decades to match that, that outgoing. And that part of the finance industry in particular is very focused around investing responsibly, having impact, generating impact beyond return. And it's incredibly frustrated that there isn't a way to do that at scale. If we can find a model to tap into that, I think that can partly unlock that. And that's the work that we've been doing. So in a nutshell, what we are looking at doing is creating a vehicle at a local level, uh, aligned with local government, funding that vehicle with the money needed to pay the entire bill. We'll come back to that sort of magic money tree stuff. We'll come back to where that money comes from in a moment. Going into a neighborhood, so maybe it's 500 homes, maybe it's 1,000, 200, that sort of order of magnitude, designing with that community what they're going to do. So that's the technical 
spec of the of the built environment piece, but it's also what community assets can we put in that support a 15 minute city type model that also act as an incentive for that community to come together and, and, and do this whole thing. You're creating a Trojan horse regeneration program in which you do retrofit. You don't ever mention retrofit. This is about investing in community. You can imagine a participatory process about what that money might go on in terms of, do we put a co-working space in? Do we have a new community center? Do we look at childcare facilities, playground, something within the package that, that the community particularly want? And you deliver that at no cost to anyone living there from this vehicle, funded vehicle. We think that starts to unlock the engagement issue. I don't have to borrow money. I don't have to pay. But clearly that feels somewhat you know, made up. Where do we get the money from? So the, the, the model, and this borrows from the PACE model in the US, it borrows from Energy Sprong, is a property-linked contract to capture the energy saving. So if I'm an average household and I'm paying £2,000 per year in gas and electricity today, this neighborhood decarbonization vehicle comes along with the local government, co-designs this model with me, pays for all this stuff, plants trees down my street, makes my house much more energy efficient, replaces my gas boiler, puts in some great assets in the community, no cost to me, my energy bill stays at £2,000 afterwards. But whereas before my combined bill had £1,000 to the gas company and £1,000 to the electricity company, it now has zero to the gas company. It has probably your gross electricity bill is going to be 1600 now, but because you've got solar battery installed in the neighbourhood, that comes down to, let's say, 500 to pick a number. I then also have now a £1,500 community net zero comfort fee. So my bill is same before and after. That community fee collected on bill goes into that vehicle and creates an annuity income stream for that vehicle. It's property linked. So if I move away, I walk away from it, but it's also indivisible from the property. I can't negotiate it when I buy and sell a house, almost like a ground rent kind of. Now you could decide in particular areas, we're going to leave some of that saving with the resident because we have a particular fuel poverty issue and we want to directly target that but you don't have to in the model. It's the model diagnostic to that. That annuity income stream, 30, 40 year income stream, you can go and sell to a pension fund. They will buy that from you for a low return. And that we think could potentially pick up 30 to 60% of the capital bill. Wow. I mean, that that's that's energy performance contracting as I know it. I mean, I did my PhD on this many years ago, but as you say, it's the investors who are seeing that the savings for the customer journey for that household, as you say, they're paying the same bill, but they have an upgraded home and an upgraded community. Yes. They're living a better life, or we, we hope, yeah. with no upfront capital cost. Absolutely. That's, that's the idea. Now, when you run the numbers and do the modeling, you can't fund 100% of the capital through that model because the savings just aren't big enough. And, and the capital numbers are too big, right? It's not 9,000, it's more like 50. So there's only part of the capital stack that you can sell on to the pension fund. And the pension funds are not looking for huge returns. The credit risk of this income stream is very low. It's utility bill payments, capitalizing even at like two to 3% yield, it's not gonna cover the capital bill. So you have a gap, a funding gap that you have to plug from somewhere. And we've conceived of that in two buckets. So this has to be essentially grant finance, right? This has to be money that comes in that doesn't get paid back. You can think of that in two buckets. One, we think of as traditional government funding. The government already is spending on heat pump subsidies. It's already funding tree planting. You know, it's funding economic recovery funding. You repurpose some of that money into this vehicle to pay for those outcomes because you are generating employment, you're generating healthcare benefits, you're generating biodiversity improvements in terms of how you're planting the green infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. We think there's also another bucket. This kind of aggregated model doing this at scale allows you to engage with another group of what we've called outcome-seeking grant funders. And this could be a really eclectic group of uh, organizations. It could be quite small scale. You have a local charity very focused on fuel poverty alleviation in a particular district that is prepared to put money in in order to deliver savings to people who live in that place or wanting to drive better housing quality for particular communities community shares for instance rufus you could have a community owned charity raising funds from the community to invest in this neighborhood approach and they would see a long-term return you could also have abundance style community bonds where people can co-invest and actually get a financial return so you need to split those two in, in there's one that is an is a financial investment where a community could raise money 
to invest and get the return. They get part of their energy saving back effectively for that money going in. Or you could have a charity that's putting money in, doesn't want the money back, but is delivering outcomes in terms of better quality housing, better healthcare outcomes, better educational outcomes. Just on the individual point, Rufus, this is a different way of thinking about as investing in retrofit. Instead of as investing, homeowners investing in our homes, it is everybody investing in a community neighborhood by neighborhood retrofit scheme. Yes. And and the, the way into that might be a community investment. Possibly, but our starting point, because we know people don't really want to do this on average everywhere globally, people aren't excited about retrofit improving but they're not excited about it our starting point is residents pay nothing and there's a lot of conversation about asset owners there's often less conversation about residents as the client they're the people who this is being done with and improving the lives of our starting point is they pay nothing i mean they obviously they pay through the energy saving and that comfort fee over time but they're not borrowing any money there's no indebtedness at an individual level but there are other other impacts that you we think you could monetize so for example and this is happening already within one sort of narrow domain, if you plant green infrastructure in an urban environment, you change the way that the water system works. So you're delivering less cleaner water into the energy system. If I'm a water company, that reduces my operating costs. It reduces the uh, depreciation of my assets. It reduces my capital investment program. So I'm prepared to pay, co-contribute into that program to offset those costs. And we're seeing water companies co-investing with local government around tree planting. So you put in a layer of water company investment. The one that we think could be potentially quite impactful, if you think about this operating at a a whole local government level, you're reducing significant carbon. If you can get that accredited and it becomes a source of carbon credits, you then have a really strong narrative. HSBC headquartered in Birmingham, stop offsetting in Brazil, I don't know if they are, but in Brazil, offset in your your local community. NatWest headquartered in Edinburgh, buy your carbon credits locally by offsetting your local community. So you then have a layer of carbon credit purchase, which is effectively grant finance. You're getting money into the into the pot that you don't have to pay back with cash. You're paying it back with the with the carbon reduction. When presumably there's a big incentive here as well for like the network companies. So a lot of the changes we've been talking about, particularly electrifying our heating system, electrified transport, you know, that's going to have a massive impact on our electricity networks need to significantly upgrade them. So, you know, is there also the opportunity to kind of repurpose some of that and and really look quite holistically? You talked about the potential for creating these local energy systems with local assets that could be managed in more local ways. Presumably, this is going to have a massive impact on our entire network. Um, Yeah, both on the suppliers and the network operators. I know that Energy Systems Catapult doing quite a lot of work around the level of coordination between local government action on net zero and the DNOs and the network operators. And there could probably be more cooperation than there is currently. And and, and they're they're, they're trying to move that agenda forward. I think that's really important. This whole question about distributed generation and the resilience that builds into the the energy network. I think there's also a really interesting angle here from um, the energy suppliers. Being an energy supplier is a terrible business model. Right? You are trapped between a wholesale energy cost and a regulated price you can sell energy at. And, and you get squeezed. The margin of, of the energy suppliers is, is very low, as we've seen with a huge number of them going out of business over the last six to 12 months. But those are the same companies that actually could be really well placed to manage the infrastructure that we'd be putting in place. Now, you're talking about building out solar battery heat pump networks around communities. There's an interesting conversation about does that sit in a community investment company type structure and where does it, where does long-term ownership revert? But given we're talking about a 30, 40 year return profile, you're going to need to replace solar panels. You're going to need to replace batteries. You're going to need to replace inverters. There is a maintenance cycle around that, which will have to come out of that saving return um, and be modeled in. It can't all go to supporting capital, but someone needs to take on that contract to manage those assets. And I would argue the energy suppliers might be really well placed and that's a much better business for them. Shifting from selling kilowatts to, to actually selling services. I mean, yeah. this is a really, uh, a very transformational idea, what you're proposing. It's no longer about the incentives and the policies acting as the carrot and the sticks at the individual level, but it's an entirely different model. So, you know, do we need to see big changes in the policy environment to enable this to happen, right? We're two years into the decade of action. 2030 is looming, it's sitting there looming ahead of us. You know, what has to change to enable this sort of model to happen? I think there is a significant policy shift required, but I suspect it's quite a fragmented, it's lots of little changes 
in all, lots of different systems that tend to be thought of in isolation. I think there is a really big shift required in the way that we think nationally about funding these things, which tends to come down in very technocratically siloed domains. Let's put in place a heat pump subsidy scheme and do that nationally. Now, if I'm a gas boiler fitting firm in Dudley, the fact that there's a bit more national demand for heat pumps is not very useful to me. I need significant concentrated demand in my local area to take the plunge to repurpose my firm to be a heat pump firm, the training required, et cetera. We know there's a huge supply chain response required to, to make this work. You need that kind of local drive. And I think one of the real problems is that often the funding channels to do this kind of work they come in funding calls. You can make a call for a, an insulation program, but if you go and say, we've got a program that's got solar, it's got, it's got all of these, it's green infrastructure, it's, it's community investment, there is no one place to go to for funding. And so thinking about how we fund this stuff, the role that the UK Infrastructure Bank could play in that. And I know some of that thinking is going on. So the work that we're doing is currently funded by Bayes. And I know that some of the things, there is thinking going on about how to make that, that work. But I think there's a step before that, which is, what we're proposing is, is very different and is complex because it is not doing things in silos. It's bringing those silos together, which we've traditionally not been very good at. We need to move beyond ideas to proving this and doing it. And that's actually what we're currently doing. There's, there's an organization that's been formed in the UK called the UK Cities Climate Investment Commission. It was formed initially by Connected Places Catapult, London councils and core cities. So the 11 largest, I think, cities in, in the rest of the UK. That membership is now expanding out quite rapidly across the whole of the UK. We need to run and demonstrate. We need to have a go at doing this, work out what the problems are. Yeah. Because you'll only find the policy problems as you run into them one by one and then feed those back into central government and say, look, we need this this is blocking. We need to we need to change this to move forward. And and of course you've got the, the policies to encourage, you know, institutional investors to to shift investment into lower carbon, to divest and what have you. And we've we've talked a little bit about that in, in previous episodes. But Rufus, there's a lot lot of food for thought and quite a transformational way forward there. I'm very excited to hear that and taking a lot away from that so before we we close out what we like to do is just pause and kind of reflect on what the purpose of the pod is which is about to encourage and profile personal and local action to tackle climate change and we'd like just to ask you really be as broad uh, or as specific as you like about what you think people can do today to start making a positive change in terms of tackling climate change and, and the adverse effects of that so that can be anything you've got the soapbox what what can our listeners do <laughs> I always find this question tricky because it always comes back to the idea of individual responsibility. And this is collective and it's, it is collective at a local level, but it's also collective at a national level. It needs to be enabled nationally. I mean, there's all the obvious stuff personally. Don't eat as much meat. Don't get on planes. Mm. Don't, don't drive a petrol car, all that sort of stuff. And yeah, I'm very aware that there's a level of privilege that sits behind the ability to make those choices many times. Yeah. And that's they're not always available to everybody. I think collectively, if you are lucky enough to live in a community that does have access to do this, I would argue it's much better to get together and think about how to do this collectively at a systemic level. Mm. And you'll chip in your 20, 30, 40, 50,000 if you have access to that capital, because you could run this kind of net, net zero neighborhood approach privately as a community. And it's a big undertaking because it's not a small thing. It's not putting in your bit of insulation, you know, draft proofing your windows, all the stuff that we kind of all should be individually doing. But I think what you can do is create that community linkage that can apply some pressure to local government. Yeah, That's not to say that local government isn't doing this stuff. And we talk to a lot of UK local authorities. There are some phenomenal people working in those organizations trying to do this stuff often while trying to do eight other jobs without any funding. And so that's where I think this enabling piece from, from national government is required. And I think we're also, the, frankly, the financial services community could come together and part fund this because we're talking about creating a new huge investment opportunity for the financial services community to fund the business development of that or part from the business development of that would not be unreasonable, I don't think. And, and I really like your point about you can't take collective action for a collective problem without a collective. I think that's a, that's an interesting point. Rufus, thank you so much. Uh, really enjoyed that chat. A pleasure. Yeah, it's been absolutely brilliant. Absolutely enlightening. And for me, incredibly positive because I often get 
quite despondent when we start to talk about some of these issues and some of the finance because it seems to always be focusing on the problems and although it's complex I feel like you've brought a really interesting and innovative solution that can help move us forward so absolutely brilliant to, to talk with you today. As always, you know, please do get involved in our discussion if you're interested in talking about uh, or engaging in what we've been talking about on the show, or if you've got any thoughts about uh, what you might like to hear from us for future shows. So do please go find and follow us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter. Get involved in the discussions, give us a shout out, or even reach out if you want to come on the pod. We're always looking for exciting people to chat with about local solutions to climate action. If you are like me and cannot constrain your thoughts to 140 characters, email us localzeropod at gmail.com. We will be checking that if you want to share some longer thoughts. But for now, I think all that's left to do is to say thank you to Rufus, thank you to Joe, and thank you to everybody that's been listening. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks. Goodbye. Thank you. Produced by Bespoken Media.